The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia, with special guest, pastor, and teacher, Jim Kerwin. Good afternoon, and can it possibly be Thursday already? We're now on day four of our subject, What's the Context? I'm Jim Kerwin. I'm filling in for the vacationing, well, not really vacationing, but resting and recharging Ray and Alexandra Greenlee. And we have been talking about hermeneutics this week. We've been talking about how to properly, rightly divide the Word of God and some of the, the principles that we need to keep in in mind when we're doing context, studying the the things that surround the text we're reading, thinking about historical context, cultural context, linguistic context as we're reading the Old and New Testaments. A couple of notes here. I was praying about the broadcast this morning, and I was reminded of a verse in John chapter 13, verse 17, where Jesus says, If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Now, just to be clear, the context is he has just washed the disciples' feet, setting an example of how they are to serve one another and the rest of the world. But I'm sure you'll agree with me that this is a a spiritual principle. If you're walking in obedience, then you'll be happy, you'll be blessed. Like the song that people used to sing, I don't know if they do anymore, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. What's the obedience we're talking about? Well, for many of you, the challenge is that you haven't been reading God's word through regularly, systematically, and I would like to strongly encourage you to do it annually. Whether your year starts on August 1st like mine does or January 1st, I start mine on August 1st because I was saved on July 31st and I made the Lord a promise that night, 1968, that I would read through the scriptures at least once a year and I have kept that promise now for more than 50 years. That reminds me, what is the best time, what's the best day to start reading the Bible? And I'll tell you what the answer is. The answer is the day you get saved, the day you come to Jesus, the day you declare Jesus is Lord and you're going to follow him and obey him. It's his book. That makes sense. All right, what is the second best day to begin reading the Bible? And that is today. If you haven't been doing it up to this point in time, today is the day to start. Now, for us... Tomorrow is going to be the day when you say, I'm accepting the challenge. I will do it. I want to be blessed like the, the Guatemalans, the pastors, the leaders, uh, the, the ones in Honduras, the ones in Peru, everybody who's submitted to this discipline, the recent crew of, we call them elephant eaters in, uh, in Iowa, elephant eaters because of the concept of the Bible being big like an elephant and you need to eat it bite by bite over a year's time. So 
tomorrow I'm going to issue a challenge and I'm going to give you a phone number and have you call into the producer and say, yes, I'm going to accept the challenge. I'm going to start walking in obedience and reading through God's word. Now, for those of you who are already reading through the Bible systematically so that you cover all the material in a year's time, I would like to hear from you too. I'd like you to call our producer, Kevin, at 877-534-0780 and say, praise the Lord, I'm already doing that. Just give your first name. We're not going to call and follow up on you. Or if you're hearing this after the fact on the podcast or on the website or uh, on the YouTube channel, then just drop me a note. You can send it to elephanteaters at finestoftheweet.org. I realize that means you're sending your email address, but trust me, other than just a quick response saying, praise the Lord, I'm glad that you are have, have taken this challenge or that you've been doing this for 10 years, however long it's been. Oh, uh, other than that, that's all the correspondence will have unless you want to continue that. Now, I'll also shorten that so that all you have to do is write to EE, short for Elephant Eater, no punctuation or anything, just EE at finestoftheweet.org, and I'll get that. Now, one other thing. People go into the Bible and they think, but there's, there's so much to learn, so much I don't know. I, I don't know... I don't know if there's a lot of Christians in the Washington, D.C. area that are aware that the world's most knowledgeable, most famous, and justifiably so, the most famous Bible teacher lives right here in the capital area and makes himself available to come to your home, to come to your office, and to open up the scriptures to you. That's not me. I don't live in this area, and I'm certainly not the world. In fact, I may be the world's least known Bible teacher. That's okay. This one is the one you want, not necessarily me. You say, I never heard of this person. Well, yes, you have probably, but I don't know if you've made the connection. His name is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says when he comes, he's going to lead you into all truth. For 50 years now, I... (laughs) I can't tell you how many times a week I stop in my reading and say, Lord, I don't understand this, or or, Holy Spirit, thank you for opening this up. That that wasn't clear. Or what is the connection between those two things? Why did Jesus say this the way that he said it? And I can tell you, he has always been so faithful, sometimes immediately, sometimes a week or more later. Sometimes it may be years before something clicks. Maybe I'm not ready to understand it before that happens, before that time comes. But the Holy Spirit is always faithful. Where he lives, if you are a Christian, where he lives, if you are born again, is in your heart. So it's not like you have to go to a meeting. It's not like you have to call somebody up. It's not like you have to send a text or an email. You just stop and pray and say, Holy Spirit, you're the one who leads us into all truth. Would you open this up to me? I'm, I'm having trouble understanding. And believe me, after, after 100 times through the, well, more than 100 times through the New Testament and more than 60 through the Old Testament, there are still, still times every week when I stop and say, you know, this has never qu- quite been clear to me. Would you help me to understand this? So just understand that you have that tremendous resource. Now, there's no sense asking for help on a book that you're not going to read. Why the Holy Spirit would bother to answer that, I'm not saying he won't, but I'm saying that's his business, and 
it, it seems less likely. So anyhow, if you're reading through the Bible, please call Kevin today, 877-534-0780. You won't go on the air, just like a, a, a note, a, a name, and just say, I'm doing it, praise the Lord, I've been blessed in it. And tomorrow is the challenge. Now, tomorrow's also the final exam. What's on the final exam? Just two things. First question, what is the most important thing to do whenever you pick up a Bible to read? other than to pray and ask the Lord to open it up. And it's this. Ask this question, what is the context of what I'm reading? And the second thing that's on the exam, see, I'm not even giving you the questions, I'm giving you the answers. The most important context that you can deal with in the Bible is the context of the entire Bible. And the only way you can appreciate and learn and absorb that context is to read it and reread it and reread it from now till the end of your life or from now until Jesus comes. You can't put it under your pillow and absorb it. I don't know if you ever did that as a kid. You know, you have an exam the next day and you go to bed and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm not ready for the fill-in-the-blank history exam. So you stick the pillow under your, I'm sorry, you stick the textbook under your pillow and hope that some of it will come up through the feathers and the pillowcase during the night. Doesn't happen it doesn't produce good results with history, and it doesn't produce good results when it comes to being a Christian who is knowledgeable in the matters of God and his word. All right, let's go to where we were yesterday. And yesterday we were right at the beginning of looking at how an important cultural and historical bit of information, some context, would help us to see afresh with new eyes without our our lenses on, our, our dark lenses where, that make us see things with preconceived ideas, the arrest of Jesus was not by Roman soldiers. And now I want to get into what we left off with yesterday, that the guards at the tomb were not Roman soldiers either. They were all part of this group we learned about, or at least were reminded about yesterday, called the Temple Guard. Matthew goes into some detail about them, and it's clear in Matthew, what is it, 26, 43, I think was the verse, that these came not from the procurator, not not from uh, Pontius Pilate, not from some Roman garrison. They came from the high priests, it's the Jewish temple guard. They came with swords and clubs, not swords and spears and other weapons you would expect in a military operation. We looked at the existence of this group in Second Chronicles, I think it's, uh, no, First Chronicles 26, and then how he's mentioned, in, they're mentioned in John 7, they're mentioned in Acts 4, Acts 5, and like I said yesterday, it's my supposition, the scriptures don't say that, that the group that Paul went with had to have consisted of the Jewish temple guard because somebody had to help him arrest and apprehend these people. All right, so we, we talked about the arrest. We talked about how if we read Pilate's words when he speaks to the Jews after Jesus has been buried. And by the way, when it says the next day, it's not like they waited 24 hours to go to Pilate. You recall that the beginning of a Jewish day is sunset. 
That marks the new day. That's when every day starts. That's when the Sabbath starts. Sunset, official sunset. So within hours of the time that Jesus was taken down from the cross and buried, they went to Pilate. And you recall Pilate's words, if we read them without any prejudice, just applying the straight grammar. You, plural, have a guard. You, plural, go and make it, that make, make the tomb, as secure as you, plural, can. So they went, that is the priestly overseers with the temple guard, and having sealed the tomb, they set the temple guard. You can read about that in John uh, Matthew rather, 27, verses 65 to 66. Now, resurrection morning, what happens? Resurrection morning, the angel comes down, there's an earthquake, the door opens, it says that the, the guards were like, dead men and they go running off to the temple to their bosses they go to the the temple and they say they tell them what happens and and so you can just imagine the leaders saying it's, it's going from bad to worse here all right look shut up about this here's a bribe and here's what you say you say that the disciples came and stole the body while we were asleep now, why is Pilate mentioned in that particular passage, Matthew 28, 11 through 15? Not because they were Roman soldiers, because as we'll see in a few minutes, Pilate and the, the superiors of these soldiers, had they been Romans, couldn't have, it wouldn't have mattered if they'd been bought off. Uh, there's a certain procedure that happens in Roman military jurisprudence, and no amount of bribe could have saved these guys from being executed. But they're operating in a special situation. Pilate has allowed them to use their their soldiers or paramilitary police, if you want to call them that, if you're familiar with how things operate in other countries like in Latin America. Um, so if Pilate hears about this, and if there's some trouble because he's thinking about you in terms of how he would think about Roman soldiers, that's okay. We'll take care of the problem. That's why Pilate is mentioned at that point in time. All right, now, the other reason we know that these were Jewish temple guards and not Roman soldiers is because of what we know from outside the Bible of Roman military jurisprudence. The Roman Empire was the success that it was for centuries largely because of Roman military discipline. If you disobeyed a direct order, you were executed. If you ran away in battle before, if, unless retreat was sounded, you were executed. If you lost a prisoner that was put in your charge, you were executed. So there are certain rules that were always, always applied and military justice was short and swift. So we can see some of this in the book of Acts. This keeps getting brought to our attention repeatedly. And I think it's not only because the, the history is true, I think the Holy Spirit's giving us something to compare Matthew 28 against, Matthew 28, 11 through 15, when it talks about the guards. For instance, Acts chapter 12, Peter is in prison. And he's been assigned to four groups of four soldiers. And they're going to change the guard probably once every three hours. And so of these four, two are chained to him, one to his right and one to his left, in the prison cell. Two are outside the prison door. And then there's the usual complement of whoever would be 
in this Roman jail taking care of things. So what happens to Peter's guards when they're found, they can't find the prisoner when Peter's been let out? I know he was let out by an angel. Nevertheless, there was never an excuse. They lost their prisoner and they were executed. Same chapter. You can read it in Acts 12.4 and then verses 18 and 19. Now this explains a couple of other things that might not otherwise be clear. Remember the passage about Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16 where they are in a Roman jail. Now Philippi, although it was an older Greek city, had been destroyed and had been recreated and became a special Roman colony. It was a place where Roman military veterans who lived to retirement age settled down. So this is a real... Uh, if I can use the term, this is a real God and country town. And all of these people are Roman soldiers. They're still very much in their mind. You know, think of, uh, you know, uh, ex-Marine or an ex-Army guy, people who've been in for 20 years. They're still that kind of discipline and mindset. And so the Philippian jailer, seeing the prison shaken and all the doors open, can only assume the worst. If he has lost even one prisoner, if he's lost just one prisoner, not his fault, the, you know, it's, it's an act of God that the earthquake came. But if the prisoner's lost, it's on his head. So what does he do? He pulls his sword out and he's going to kill himself. That's why Paul shouts out, and that's why Paul knows to shout out, do yourself no harm, we're all here and accounted for. So this guy calls for a torch, and he comes in, and he looks around, he does a, a, <laughs> does a roll call, they're all there. He can't believe his good fortune. And so very rapidly that night, he gets saved, and all of his family gets saved, I hope you notice the order, too, in that passage. First, after their salvation, Paul takes them down to get baptized, and then they have something to eat, having not eaten for 12 to 18 hours. Business first with Paul. Praise God for him. So then you've got the story of the the great hurricane, the Eurachlodon, this huge storm that hit when Paul was being taken to Uh, to Rome in Acts chapter 27. And there's soldiers on board. There's a complete complement. There's lots of prisoners. We know that the whole, everybody on board numbered about 200 and, what was it, 76. Anyway, when the boat finally comes to a crashing halt, and I use the term advisedly, and it's breaking apart, then the soldiers say, let's kill the prisoners. Why would they do that? It's because they know for every prisoner lost, one of them is going to lose their life. Roman military jurisprudence demands that they, one of them be killed. And the only thing worse than that is to disobey a commanding officer. And it specifically says, in fact, I was just reading this yesterday, the day before, the, the officer willing to save Paul's life said, no, let them all swim to shore. The ones who can swim, let them swim. The ones who can grab something and, and paddle in and sort of use it as a flotation device, go ahead and do it. So great discipline on the part of the Roman soldiers. They obey their commanding officer, 
and everybody gets to shore, everyone's accounted for, no one's lost. And Paul had promised them, remember, he said there'll be no loss of life, not just from the storm, as it turns out, but from losing any prisoners. So there's just three examples from the book of Acts of how Roman military jurisprudence works. If they had lost a prisoner, either those soldiers on board with Paul or the Philippian jailer, they would have been killed. Not their fault, doesn't matter. Same thing with Peter's guards, only this time they didn't get off the hook. Four of them were executed, the four that were on duty, when they came to be relieved by the next group of four men. So what about these guards at the tomb? They didn't report to the Roman superior. They didn't get found by another relief group of guards from the the, uh, Roman garrison. They ran away. Now, think about the testimony of these fellows. Uh, they were bribed and said, they're told, look, you will tell people that uh, you, you slept and the disciples came and stole them away. All right, if I were a, um, a, a prosecuting attorney, I would, I would separate all these people and, and only let one at a time into the courtroom and put one somebody on the stand and say, okay, um, let's see. Let's, let's give him a, a good Roman name, Julius. All right, Julius, were you on, on guard at the night that the, the body of Jesus disappeared? Yes, sir, I was. And um, what happened that night? Well, sir, um, we, uh, uh, we fell asleep. And so what happened to the body? Well, his disciples came and stole it. Now, how, how deep a sleep were you? Oh, sir, I was just, I was completely out of it. I was just sawing logs. Well, if you, were, if you were that much asleep, how is it that you know that the disciples came and stole the body? And then I would send him out of the courtroom, bring the next man in and the next man in, and show beyond a shadow of a doubt that these guys were absolute liars. How can you be deeply asleep as your alibi, but know what happened while you were deeply asleep? Matthew says there that this saying is commonly reported among the Jews, and I was used to take that and say, well, that's, so that was a rumor that was spread around, oh, Jesus' body was stolen. But then I realized in reading all the way through the book of Acts, they, they never bring this up as an excuse. Well, you stole the body. They had ample opportunity to bring that argument up, and they never did. I think what Matthew is actually saying is everybody knew they had been bribed, and so that story didn't go over because the story that went out was that They ran away from the tomb and were bribed. And when you consider the thousands who came to Jesus in Jerusalem in the days subsequent to the resurrection, especially Pentecost, I think that interpretation is more likely. Just a couple of things, uh, just a couple of thoughts about tools as you're going into Bible study and wanting to get some of the background, get some of the context, linguistics. Uh, at At a minimum, at a minimum in your Bible library, you should have a concordance. Now, probably the best one, even if you're not reading the King James, is the Strong's Concordance, although that has been adapted for, I think, New American Standard and NIV, and perhaps by now the, the ESV, the English Standard Version. Something that allows you, without knowing Greek, without knowing Hebrew, to follow a word from its listing into a lexicon on the back. There are two lexicons. One is for Hebrew, one is for Greek, 
Having that does not make you a Greek or Hebrew scholar, but it does give you some flavor, some idea of the word and how it's used and how it might otherwise be translated. In fact, it may infect you with a desire to learn the original languages. That would not be a bad thing. Next thing is a Bible dictionary, preferably a, a one with nice color pictures. Um, it's just so good as far as background and history and so forth. Sometimes I recommend a commentary. That's up to you. Some people find them helpful. Some people don't. I have a lot of commentaries, and probably in the last 20 years, I haven't used them a great deal. Sometimes if I'm studying a particular passage, after I've thoroughly exhausted what I can do for study, I will go and look at some of the commentators that I trust and and sometimes glean a bit more, but there's usually not a great harvest. But that's because I've been reading and studying the scriptures for 50 years. You might find it helpful. Usually you can get one in, like Adam Clark, you can have in one volume. Um, you can have, I'm trying to think, my my thought process has just been frozen here. But there are several that you can get a good one-volume commentary and just follow through with that. Another really helpful one would be to get a, a book about manners and customs of Bible times. That will open up some cultural things to you that will just turn on light bulbs for various passages. So those four sorts of books I would get, I would learn how to use them. You say, well, there are online equivalents. Yes, I know there's online equivalents of all sorts of um, Bible translations too. Somewhat helpful, but not quite the same as being able to have it open on the desk in front of you next to your Bible and be making some comparisons and kind of soaking it in. So that's just my thought about how to how to do some study. Now, we're going to cover two subjects, one today, one tomorrow, and there, both of these are in articles on the Finest of the Wheat website. I will link to them in the show notes today. So if we don't get completely done with, with one or the other, you can do the whole thing. I want to take you to Isaiah 6, a famous passage. I'm sure everybody, even people who haven't read through the Old Testament, know Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. He was high and lifted up. His train filled the temple, and so forth. And then you get to verse 5, and having seen God, having seen his glory, having seen his everything that's going on and these heavenly beings... He says, Woe on me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then an angel comes from the altar with a hot coal, presses it to, not an angel, uh, a seraph, comes and presses it to his lips and says, Your iniquity is purged. And then he hears the voice of God. Well, people jump right into this. They're all excited about the glory of God and what it's like to be in the throne room. And uh, Good, that's, that's wonderful. But they skip over some very, very important points. This passage opens up, if you've been a reader of the Old Testament, then you will spot some things. The Holy Spirit will open things to you that will make this a, a, a much deeper passage. I even heard one pastor, this was 
he was much younger then, so cut him some slack, 20, 25 years ago, a long time ago, who, who said, oh, well, see, Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. He meant that sometimes even, even preachers cuss and swear. You know, sometimes even, even these men of God cuss and swear. And this, if you can believe it, a guy from a Pentecostal holiness denomination, I just, I wanted to groan on the inside. But rather than criticize him, I went home after that. At Sunday afternoon, I wrote up this article, went over to the parsonage, uh, not an article, but just wrote him a letter and just shared with them what the real meaning is, what I'm going to be sharing with you today. So rather than criticize him, I just thought maybe he would be helped by having this extra information and insight into what's going on here. Isaiah was not a man to cuss and swear and then say, oh, I'm, you know, woe is me. We don't know how to interpret this because we have a cultural ignorance of the meaning of the word, of the phrase unclean lips. Now I mentioned with the first time I read through the scriptures, uh, I before I got saved, I just do what everybody else does. I started at the beginning and got bogged down in the middle of Leviticus and just threw up my hands and said, "That's that's it." Well, the middle of Leviticus is chapter thirteen, chapter fourteen, and all of thirteen. It's sixty some odd verses. Talk about how the priests are to diagnose leprosy. It's their job in society. Now, interestingly, they don't diagnose the common cold. They don't diagnose cancer. They don't diagnose any other disease. They're not involved medically in any way except with this matter of leprosy. Why is that? It was their job to declare somebody leprous and to be certain that the leper was isolated from society so that they couldn't infect other people. Chapter 14 then talks about what happens when a leper is cleansed and all of the the ritual that they go through, the offerings, there's three different ones that they go through after they're declared clean. So all of that is there. But if you read Jesus in Luke chapter 4, he basically says nobody in the Old Testament ever got healed of leprosy except this Gentile named Naaman, this uh, general from Syria. And, of course, they get all angry with him as far as that's concerned. When you read through this passage in in Leviticus 13, here's the thing that you find. Lepers can't live with their families. They can't live with ordinary people, people who are clean, who are whole. They can only live with other lepers. They can't touch unleprous people. Uh, a leprous mother can never hold or nurse her baby. She can't hug her children. She can't, she can't kiss her husband. She can't do any of the things that a normal person does. A, a leprous husband or child, similarly, isolated from their family, isolated from warmth, affection, from anything that they might receive from a family member. And anybody who touched them or was touched by them was ceremonially unclean for seven days. Well, if you look at Leviticus 13.45, you'll see that a leper had to take a a cloth and cover his upper lip, probably by tying something around. I I envision something like a, a medical mask, but honestly, I don't know what it was like exactly. And he had to shout loudly if anybody came near, unclean, unclean, in order to warn people to steer clear of the disease and the spiritual pollution, the spiritual um, uncleanness that would happen. So 
Why, going back to Isaiah 61, when you read a passage, especially one that you think you know well, read it carefully. Because when you begin to read carefully and slowly and think about what you're reading, questions come up. Like I can remember one day, 25 years ago, you know, it's hard to remember when things happen when you get as old and decrepit as I am. What is in the context of Isaiah 6 that we always overlook? Well, one of the things is, the very first thing it says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Isaiah says. Well, okay, who cares when this happened? Well, let's get on to the glory of God stuff. You know, I want to get on to the important stuff in the in the chapter here, this throne room scene. Well, God never throws in any unimportant details. The Holy Spirit's very wise in how he how he writes the scriptures. Little details sometimes that we jump right over. For instance, have you ever noticed in John chapter 4 when the disciples finally bring lunch back? And it must have been a really big deal because they would have been very careful to be certain that they were only getting kosher meat and kosher bread and things that wouldn't defile their, their rabbi. The woman goes off running back to town, and it says she left her water pot. Why do I need to know that? Well, okay, so it paints an interesting picture, but why does the Holy Spirit bother to put that into the text? Well, what's the subject been? It's been, you'll receive a well in you springing up into everlasting life. life. You won't have to come back and draw water all the time. Symbolically, Symbolically, she's already come into that place. And so the Holy Spirit says she left her water pot. Well, this thing about the year Isaiah died is another one of those little details we jump over. And this actually sets the stage for everything that follows in this passage. Isaiah was an incredibly successful king. You can read about him in 1 Chronicles 26. Um, you can, and 20, about 1 through 23, I guess, is also just briefly mentioned at 1 Kings 15. And he was, the, the country was financially successful, the economy was booming, the military had special weapons that nobody had. They had secret weapons defending the city of Jerusalem. You can read all about it in that passage in First Chronicles. And at the height of his fame and glory and power, he thought, you know what? I'm really somebody. I'm going to go into the temple and I'm going to offer up incense to God. So he went into the temple. Only priests are allowed in the temple. Only priests are allowed to offer up incense. And they stand, the, the priests stand and say, King Isaiah, you are not allowed in here. And he says, how dare you? I'll go anywhere I want. I am the most successful king that Israel ever had. And Right during this confrontation, he's smitten with leprosy. And of course, what are priests trained to do? They're trained to diagnose leprosy. And so they diagnose him as leprosy, and off he goes. He's, he's separated into a small house. His son is the co-regent and rules for two years until Isaiah dies. So let's just reword those first few, uh, that first line of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year the king, the, the leprous king, 
died of leprosy, I saw the Lord. That's how this starts out. That's somebody who knows about Isaiah, knows that he died of leprosy, knows why he died of leprosy. Do you ever ask yourself why the priests only deal with leprosy? It's because leprosy in the Old Testament and in the New, really, is a type of the sin nature. Once you have it, there's no deliverance unless God directly intervenes in somebody's life. Now, interestingly, there was chapter 14 of Leviticus that talked all about the things that would happen once somebody was healed, but like Jesus said, no one was ever healed. Imagine you're a leper living in the time of Jesus and you come to him and say, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And this rabbi reaches over, puts his hands around your face. This clean rabbi is touching you. you this, you're unclean, you're unworthy. And supposedly he becomes unclean by teaching you. And instead, you become clean. You become healed. Your first human, your first non-leprous touch, this man fell. I think one of the first, first stories we hear about leprosy is Matthew chapter 8, right after the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus touches him, touches him tenderly, caringly, compassionately. And he says, what's he say? He says, go show yourself to the priest and offer the offering that it says in the book of Moses. In other words, Leviticus 14. Well, imagine this guy showing up at the temple and saying, you know, you need to come look at me. I've been healed. And the priest comes out and says, wow, according to what it says here in Leviticus 13. Yes, I know. We talked about chapters yesterday and there wasn't in Leviticus 13. Humor me with this just so you know where we're talking. So uh, he says, all right, you're healed. Now what do we do? Oh, there's something in Leviticus there's something in Leviticus 14 about what we're supposed to do. And for the first time since the Torah was written, a priest has to go figure out, what do we do? What are the, what are the sacrifices that we, that we offer? What's the order? What gets put on what? The blood and the oil and all the rest of this. Because they've read about it, but they've never, ever done it until Jesus comes and touches this leper and heals him. So... That's leprosy, the sin nature. That's Jesus dealing with that. So anyhow, now we've got all the pieces to be able to interpret Isaiah 6 properly. Isaiah was at least a prophet. There are some traditions that say he was a priest. That's not scripture. That's, that's just basically a supposition. It's a, maybe it's a tall tale, but there, there, we do have that from a few sources. Okay, he has a vision in the year the leprous king dies. And... The Levitical laws for diagnosing the, the leprosy, if, if he's a, especially if he's a priest, he knows what those are. What does he see when he enters this heavenly throne room? He sees a vision of God in his holiness. And what happens when you come into the holy presence of God? You know, National Prayer Chapel's praying for revival. I hope you're praying for revival in Washington, D.C. as well. Our nation needs it. That's part of why I'm sharing these things with you uh, during the week. What's the context? Because I think that 
for the, the revival to have a solid, firm foundation, if only in your heart, but as a movement, as a movement as a whole, it needs to be grounded in God's word. There have to be people involved, people in leadership, people who care enough about God's word to be reading it through on a consistent basis, regularly. So, what happens in revival is God comes in his glory and his holiness. And when God comes in his glory and his holiness, it's not a clap-happy time. When, you know, we use the word Shekinah, but Shekinah is not a Bible word. Uh, that's something that was used by the rabbis after the time of Jesus. The word in the Old Testament is kabod, and it means a weight. There's, there's this physical somehow sense. You, when God comes, there's this weightiness to the glory of God. And it's light, and it exposes what's in the heart. And Isaiah, whether he was a priest or not, I don't know if he was a prophet, and there he is, a man of God, given over to God as best he knows how, and all he can see in his heart, in the light of the glory of God, is his leprosy, his uncleanness. And so look at what Isaiah does in this passage. He can't cover his upper lip. He's just there. Uh, he has nothing else other than the, the clothes on his back, literally. So what he does is what he knows the leper has to do. He cries out, I'm a man of unclean lips. See, there's the first unclean. Remember the leper in Leviticus 13.45 has to cry unclean twice. And he's supposed to cover his upper lip. So he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. There's the first unclean. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. There's the second unclean. In the year that the leprous king died of his leprosy, Isaiah says, I'm here in the glory of God, and I'm a leper. I'm a worse leper than Isaiah was. And he says this so no one else in, in the heavenly realm will come and be defiled by him. He's the only dark spot in all of this glorious throne room. Now at this point, the seraph comes with coals off the altar and he's purified. And I think his heart was purified. You say, well, the coal touched his lips. I know. But think about the connection between the heart and the lips. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so symbolically, for that coal to touch Isaiah's heart and purify him, the lips are touched, and everything else comes clean after that. Now, when you think about what happened on the day of Pentecost, something very, very similar happened. We all talk about the, the rushing mighty wind and them all speaking in tongues. And something happened with the lips. But remember that there was also a flame of fire over every head. I don't hear much preaching on that. What is the flame of fire? The flame of fire is the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. It's the New Testament equivalent of this picture that we see in Isaiah 6. Clean heart. And out of a clean heart comes words of God through purified lips. So they could speak in tongues because the tongue of flame had come and purified their hearts. Isaiah's lips were purified symbolically by that burning coal. Now that he's purified, 
he hears the voice of God. It's the first time he's heard God. God didn't have to say anything to him about his sin. All he had to do was stand in the presence of God and just see himself naked and open and black and leprous. And then he's purified and he hears the voice of God and God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah looks around He's the only one there other than the seraphim and, and maybe the cherubim are there too. It doesn't mention that. So he says, I'm here, send me. And then God gives him a message to take back to Israel, a message that gets repeated in the Gospels and repeated in the Pauline epistles and repeated in the book of Acts. I won't go into that just for the sake of time. But look at how different this passage, this familiar passage, this passage that we all know, and for those of you who can't see the video, I'm putting that in air quotes, we all know a lot of things, like we all know that it was Romans who arrested Jesus and guarded the tomb. But when you know, and I'm not putting air quotes around that no, when you know the cultural background, when you know the historical setting, when you know the purpose of the author, when you know the Old Testament, then you begin to understand these things and you unknow, I'll put that in quotes, and come into a deeper, clearer, fuller understanding and relationship with an interaction with the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so vital to be reading through both Testaments annually. Now, if that elephant... Oh, by the way, when I say elephant eaters, please, I don't want to hear protests from uh, PETA or from the, uh, the ASPCA or from the Society for the Preservation of Left-Handed Albino Pygmy Elephants. I mean, we're not actually talking about eating elephants, okay? We're talking about the size of the scripture, uh, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We're talking about the discipline needed when we talk about eating an elephant. Anyhow, if, it, if for you, if reading is a challenge, and for some of us it is, some of us have, have learning disabilities, I understand that, start with the New Testament. If you've never read through the New Testament, read it. And I'll tell you why to do that, because that's the place to get your feet wet. And it's also the place that you can finish the quickest. Do you realize that if you read two chapters a day, starting right about now. I don't have the exact dates down, but if you started two chapters a day in the New Testament, that's all you read, two, maybe two and a half pages on a normal day, you would finish the New Testament before the end of this calendar year. And if you only read one chapter a day, then you would finish in less than nine months. That's not a lot of time. That's not a lot of reading. But there would be such a sense of accomplishment and a blessing that comes from obedience and having started there that it might encourage you to eat a bigger elephant. So I'm saying, if you don't think you can tackle it, uh, the whole elephant, eat a baby elephant. Oh, now they're really going to be after me, right? No, read through the New Testament, slice off a piece or two every day, and then you will be blessed in, in ways that will just encourage you. Now, I want to get back to that thing about learning disabilities. I have a dear friend. His name is Bruce. He, for many years, was a, uh, uh, a medical corpsman on Navy ships. And after he retired from his full years of service, then he went back as a, as a contractor, as, as a 
um, somebody who works in a medical capacity on ships. And he used to have a, oh, he still does. His rule was, I will not eat until I have read God's word today. Well, you know, 3 a.m., there's a, an accident in the boiler room. Somebody gets cut. Who knows what it is? There's all sorts of ways to get hurt uh, in, in regular life. Just imagine what happens in the smaller spaces on a, on a Navy vessel. So somebody gets brought in. Several people get brought in. He's, there's no doctor on board. He's the only one. He has to take care of them. And that may mean transfusions. That may mean a bunch of things until they can take somebody off onto a ship or to a base where they can receive more extensive medical uh, attention. And so he might not eat until 3 in the afternoon. He's been up for 12 hours. He refuses to eat until he has read God's Word. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with learning disability? I only, 10 years after learning about Bruce doing that, I learned that he has terrible dyslexia. It is a super challenge for Bruce to read through the scriptures. But he does it faithfully because he knows that it's what his soul needs. He knows that it's what he needs to be fortified spiritually. And God bless him. He has been such an example. He's my hero. Uh, you know, I can read, read pretty well. Uh, don't have, I'm, I'm not the fastest reader, but I can, I can get through it. Bruce is my hero. I want to hold Bruce up to you as an example because if you have reading problems, God will help you and if you will ask him. And if you're somebody with, with vision problems such that you can't any longer read, then you can do what we did for a sister down in, let's see, where was it? It was Nicaragua in uh, Managua. She came to me after this seminar and she said, I want to read through the scriptures, but I can't read. Uh, her, her eyesight had been taken away by some disease. I forget what it was. No way to get it restored. So we, we took up some money and we just sent her an entire Bible. And her pastor tells me she's been going through it and through it and through it. There's a way if you really want to obey God. There's a way for you to do that. Now, just going back to Isaiah 6, since we're winding down here, what context had been needed to deal with and understand Isaiah 6? We need to know the immediate context. We need to stop and say, wait a minute. Why do I need to know that it's the year King Uzziah died? What's the familiar, what, what's the point here? And that, knowing about Uzziah, means we have to know something about the historical books of the Old Testament. We need enough familiarity with the Torah and especially the Levitical law to know about leprosy in Leviticus 13 and 14, how the culture treated lepers and how lepers had to respond within society. So, see, a reading, a full reading of the scriptures and being able to integrate and sort of cross-reference each other, that opens this up to us. So, let me encourage you one more day, one more night to count the cost and to ask the Lord for help and say, Lord, I, I want to do this. I want to walk in obedience. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And if you know you're supposed to be reading the scriptures, you won't be happy until you're doing it on a regular basis and walking in obedience to Jesus. Let's go ahead and pray. 
Heavenly Father, I have poured out my heart here for four days. I know that there are people who are wrestling with this matter, counting the cost. Lord, so far I don't think we've had any responses that no one calling in and saying, yes, I'm reading through the scriptures on a regular basis. I wish that were a surprise, but it's not. Based on my experience here in the States for the last 25 years, it's not. Please, Lord, I ask that you would put such a hunger, such a desire in people's hearts to read your word, such a love for you, such a love for what the Holy Spirit has written, that you would bless them, help them make that commitment, and then help them keep that commitment. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for blessing your people. Thank you for the ones that you're going to raise up and prepare as part of the foundation for the revival that you're going to send to Washington, D.C. Amen. Well, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, and I am Jim Kerwin filling in for the recharging Ray and Alexandra Greenlee. I hope this has been a help, an encouragement, a blessing to you. I hope it's been a challenge to you. Tomorrow we've got one more passage to look at, and that is understanding Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4, and what it requires of us in terms of context to get the fullness out of what Jesus was saying. And when you see how he's compacted the entire gospel into just a few lines, your soul will be blessed. So we're going to sign off. Lord, bless these folks, bless these listeners, and make them hungry. Amen. Before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great Jesus Christ.